Hello and welcome to The Signal. I'm Dorsa Aslami. And I'm Matt Stickland. We're with the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. And this is our first show for the term. For the next half hour, we're going to tell you stories and let you know about what's going on around Halifax. Maya Palacio finds out why black women in Halifax are unable to access the hair products they need. I should not have to pay so much money just just to take care of myself as a black woman. Students are hoping for a change after Tuesday's midterm elections. We are absolutely yeah, we're f***ed, alright? We are absolutely f***ed if we don't get this on our control. And for our feature interview, I sat down with a woman who is researching cannabis use in connection with women's periods. So I think there is really a void in women's research in the addictions field. All that and more on today's show. But first... Traditionally, people appearing in court are asked to take their legal oath with the Bible. Now, Indigenous peoples in Nova Scotia have the option to swear the legal oath with a sacred eagle feather. Kayla Jefford Moore has the story. Yesterday, Mi'kmaq leaders from across the province and members of the Nova Scotia judiciary gathered to smudge 33 eagle feathers. Those feathers will go to courthouses across the province. The goal, according to Chief Paul Prosper, is to make moving through the judicial process more meaningful for Indigenous peoples. It creates a certain space for the criminal justice system to recognize the relevance of traditional practices of Aboriginal peoples within the criminal justice system. It allows for a space for the recognition of culture and tradition and the meanings of those culture and traditions from a perspective that is, you know, within that particular Aboriginal group. So it has a way of creating that sort of relationship with Aboriginal people, allowing them to have a meaningful way of contributing to the criminal justice system and the processes by which it uses to help resolve issues. Prosper is a lawyer and the justice lead for the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq Chiefs. He was responsible for facilitating the change. It's really quite a historic event, not only within Nova Scotia, but it will set the precedent for other jurisdictions throughout Canada. People can choose to hold the feather or place it in front of them while swearing to tell the truth, or they have the option to bring their own feather. For The Signal, I'm Kayla Jefford-Moore. Can you imagine walking into every drugstore, hair salon, and beauty store and never finding what you need for your hair? That's the struggle black women in Halifax deal with every single day. Maya Palacio set out to find what is available and what is being improved for the community by the community. What color are you looking for? Just one. Mbuji Mai Market, located on Garnton Street, is about a 20-minute bus ride from Dow Campus and one of two black hair care stores left in the area. Vicky has shopped there since it opened eight years ago. There was one in Dartmouth, which shut down, and there was one on University Avenue, and that one also shut down, so this is the last remaining one. Yeah. How does that feel? <laughs> Not good. You need special products, and the fact that we don't have as much resources to take care of our hair, is, it's really annoying. Deshante Grant is launching a hair care service called Island Coils in January that will provide a variety of hair products specifically for black women. Because in Halifax, the demand is here, but the resources are either hard to find, too expensive, or no longer exist. Variety is where we suffer. So we need like a lot of different product samples to choose from. So it's been difficult for me. And when I do find certain products, I find that they are astronomically expensive. I cannot just walk into a store and find exactly what I need. 
Dalhousie engineering student Duna Katani struggles to find products for her natural hair. I have to go into a lot of research to find where in Halifax do certain places sell for certain oils, certain creams, and I find it really hard. I have to settle for like things that don't really work with my hair. The hairdresser's market on Hollis Street, known for catering to black hair, was closed down in April. Grant shares a shopping experience. I personally picked up a bottle and saw like one bottle of shampoo for $50. That floored me. I could not believe it. I should not have to pay so much money just to take care of myself as a black woman. For Grant, it's more than just black hair. It's the message of a community putting into practice the inclusion of all its people. I think that there is something as uh, institutional racism. Other races are being accommodated at a larger level than another race. A lot of the black women that come here, specifically in Halifax, we are university students, we are educated, and we do feel like, why are we being excluded when we are making up a, a large population at this point? For The Signal, I'm Maya Palacio. A 40-day hearing into housing and care for those with intellectual and physical disabilities wrapped up this week. Laura Hardy was there and has an overview for us. Hi, Laura. Hi. To start off, can you tell us a bit about why this hearing began? Yeah, so I actually asked Claire McNeil, one of the lawyer's complainants, about this. This is a claim of discrimination against the province on behalf of people with disabilities who, from our perspective, for decades now, have experienced extreme disadvantage and discrimination um, by reason of not being able to have a life in the community. It's specifically addressing a complaint made by three people and the Disability Coalition of Nova Scotia. Basically, they're saying it's unfair they've been institutionalized instead of having a small options home. That's when they can live in the community while getting assistance. Why aren't they in a small options home? A moratorium was actually placed on building new small options homes in the 90s. The wait list has been full ever since. So what went on Wednesday? Well, it was the end of a long process. The actual hearing began back in February. It was a lot of tying up loose ends and clarifying statements. One of the province's main points was that this is not a case of discrimination. They argued it's more of a case about their living situation rather than the kind of care they receive. Why would they be in an institution for residential support? I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but that's kind of what Vincent Calderhead, the other lawyer for the complainant, was saying in his rebuttal. He mentioned at one point that if this was the question of residence, they would have been in apartments a long time ago. So what's next? Now they have to wait for the board chair, Walter Thompson, to make his decision. We don't know when that will be. I asked Callerhead how he thought today went. Here's his response. For a uh, human rights body like this one to have spent over 30 days um, hearing their complaint is incredibly significant. Why is it so significant? Well, from what Calderhead said, it's not very common for these types of voices to be heard. I also asked the province's lawyer for a comment, but they wouldn't speak with me. So now it's really just a waiting game to see what happens. Thank you so much, Laura, for the update. Thanks. You're listening to The Signal Radio on CKDU. The U.S. midterms were a hot topic of conversation this week. Normally, people don't pay much attention to them. But in the era of Donald Trump, the results are making people hopeful. 
Kathleen Jones has the story. You know, Republicans right now, there's a lot of like really poor decisions that are being made. Jeffrey Belcher is a dual Canadian-American citizen. He goes to Dalhousie University. He was born in Arkansas and voted for a Democratic candidate there. Belcher is hopeful that the election results might change things for the better. We are screwed if they don't do something about the environment. Like literally 10 years and we are absolutely, yeah, we're f***ed, all right? We are absolutely f***ed if we don't get this under control. Belcher was among more than 100 Dow students watching the U.S. midterm results at the campus bar on Tuesday night. Almost every table was full for an election few Canadians would have cared about two years ago. Belcher acknowledges the interest is unusual. I think there's a huge turnout for the midterms this year, specifically because there's a Trump administration or an administration like Trump's. You're not going to get something like this in the next 10 years, hopefully. Out on the streets, people like Stephanie Lane are also excited about the results south of the border. I think it's hopefully a step in the right direction for them. Robin Pompa agrees. Uh, anything that's going to push Trump out sooner, I'm down for. And Dina Alcibay says the future looks a little brighter. If we have more diversity, there's going to be um, more inclusive decision making and thus more inclusive societies. The Democrats now have control of the House, but the Republicans picked up more seats in the Senate. It'll make for a different dynamic in the 2020 election. For The Signal, I'm Kathleen Jones. That's not the only story that could be affected by the midterm elections. Over the past few weeks, thousands of migrants have been traveling to the U.S.-Mexico border. They hope to seek refugee status in the U.S. It's being called the biggest Central American migrant caravan in decades. We have more from Rebecca Butler. In a video from The Guardian, we hear the protest cries of hundreds of migrants. They shout, Why do they kill us? Why do they murder us? If we are the hope of Latin America. They are fleeing violence and insecurity in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. The journey takes weeks. As they approach the border, communities worldwide are responding to the crisis. Among them are Halifax activists. Claudia Castillo's family immigrated from Panama and Colombia. She was looking for a way to support the migrants. She helped organize a local event to coordinate action for the caravan. Stacy Gomez is Guatemalan Canadian. She co-organized the action. So I think it's uh, of paramount importance to show international solidarity with what's happening, especially with the threats of violence by the U.S. government and the role that Canada uh, has played in creating the situation there. So. And they should turn back now. In a press conference last week, Trump said migrants will be turned away at the U.S. border. So let me begin by stating that these illegal caravans will not be allowed into the United States. In response, Halifax protesters want the Canadian government to end the Safe Third Country Agreement. It's a treaty with the U.S. that says migrants can't apply for refugee status to Canada if they first arrive on U.S. soil. They also want the government to break its silence on the caravan and open its borders to the migrants. For The Signal, I'm Rebecca Butler. In 2017, an SCC started using an app to help international students prepare for and adjust to life in Canada. Now, it's been one year since they launched the project full-scale. Ava Coulter touched base with the NSCC International Students and Administration to see how it's going. Anilda Paris is from the Dominican Republic. She started using the app in September. I mostly got my information from the website and then I saw that uh, it was a more 
portable and straightforward way to find like the student guidebook and immigration details and things like that. Ashley Pinson-Tobin is the manager of international learning programs at NSCC. She's been working on this tool since January of 2017. She says the app is an alternative for their online international student guidebook. The app offers more resources and a faster way to reach students. I feel like it helps us feel a bit more connected. Um, I think people are just keen to use their phones to find what they need. So I think it's, it's been helpful for us, definitely. The app is only offered in English. Elder Koch is a student from Brazil who works part-time updating the app. He says the fact that it's in English helps the students learn the language. His own experience as an international student helps him understand what students need from the app. He and Pinson Tobin also get feedback from surveys and focus groups. He says more than 85% of NSCC's international students use the app, but he would like to see that number increase. We need to improve the engagement and spread the word that we have this tool and students can use more. We asked four students in the printing room if they use the app. Yashwant Diman said yes. The app was like phenomenal and even the things the student even know, didn't know that they will need. The app consists of that all that information. Now, the biggest challenge is to keep up as immigration rules and policies change. For The Signal, I'm Eva Coulter. You're listening to The Signal, the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Matt Stickland. And I'm Dorsa Aslami. Still to come on the show... We'll be hearing about those trendy new designated smoking areas. If I can't smoke in my building, which I can't, and I can't smoke in public areas, which I'm, you know, legally not allowed to now, where am I supposed to smoke? And we'll be learning about how the new smoking laws are being enforced. It's kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> like, you feel like you're always having to hide to have a cigarette. Want a job when you graduate? Teachers are promoting the STEM fields to give students better work prospects. Kind of progressing in, like, my knowledge of science and kind of, like, problem solving and all that. But first, we have Dorsa Eslami's interview with researcher Kayla Joyce. Hi, Kayla. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Kayla. Every month, half the population undergoes a menstrual cycle. Some cry, some eat, some sleep to cope with the roller coaster of emotions that come with the flow. I talked to Kayla Joyce about those who toke to get through it. She's a psychiatric researcher who's studying cannabis use and addiction across menstrual cycles. Hi, Kayla. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Tell me a little bit about your research. Yeah, so I'm looking at um, cannabis use across the menstrual cycle. So the main relationship that we want to look at is the relationship between mood. So if an individual is feeling depressed or if they're feeling very positive, the reasons for using cannabis, which they could be using it to cope or to enhance their positive mood, and then their actual cannabis use. So how much cannabis are they using? Are they using it more frequently? Things like that. And we want to look at all of that across the menstrual cycle to see if there's specific times of the menstrual cycle when women are using more cannabis as well as if they're using it for a specific reason during a certain time of the menstrual cycle. So, for example, women may be using more cannabis during a certain time of their menstrual cycle when they're feeling more depressed, and they may be using it to cope with that depression. And what drew you to this topic specifically? Yeah, so I think there is really a void in women's research in the addictions fields. A lot of researchers will think that they shouldn't be including women in their research because they have the possibility of getting pregnant. So from an ethical standpoint, that makes sense because you don't want 
pregnant women to be involved in addictive behaviors, but at the same time, it's leaving a very big void in our research and our understanding of addictive behaviors in women. Have you done similar research uh, previously? Yeah, so I've actually done two other studies that have looked at different forms of addictive behaviors across the menstrual cycle. So I've looked at alcohol consumption across the menstrual cycle as well as gambling across the menstrual cycle. So with the legalization of cannabis, we're hoping to complete this study that's looking at cannabis use across the menstrual cycle and trying to take all of our results and combining them into some sort of educational tool for women, especially with the lack of research that we have right now specific for women, just to try to develop something that's women-specific that will be able to help women who are experiencing issues with addiction. What are you hoping to prove or show at the end of this research? Uh, So I guess the main thing that we're trying to figure out is we're looking at cannabis use, cannabis use motives, so reasons why individuals are using cannabis, and mood fluctuations across their menstrual cycle. So we want to see if there's a relationship between those variables and try to develop some sort of female-specific treatment that will look at addressing cannabis use in women. And what stage of the research process are you at right now? Yes, right now we're still in participant recruitment. So I have about 65 participants who have been ran or are still completing the study. We're looking to get about 80 participants. So I still have about 15 more participants that I need to collect data from. And who are you looking for in terms of candidates? Yeah, so the women that we're looking for, they're ideally individuals that don't use any sort of hormonal contraceptives, and they haven't used any sort of hormonal contraceptives within the past three months. They can't be pregnant, trying to conceive. They can't be using marijuana for medical reasons, and they cannot have any sort of pain disorder, anything like that. Anything that will influence the menstrual cycle, ideally. And what is the biggest disqualifier among potential subjects that you've found so far? I've already ran about 200 telephone screenings, and the main issue that we've been having is a lot of women are using hormonal contraceptives, which is a good thing, but also a bad thing for my research. So we're not ex- including women that are using hormonal contraceptives just because it does influence ovarian hormones across the menstrual cycle, which is what we expect to be driving the relationship that we're looking at. So we can't be including women using hormonal contraceptives, unfortunately. And how can people get involved? So they could email me at k.joyce, J-O-Y-C-E, at dal.ca and just express their interest in participating. Then we would end up doing a telephone screening to determine if they're eligible. So they have to meet a list of inclusion criteria. And then we could schedule them to come into the lab. Incredible. Thank you so much for coming in, Kayla. Yes, thank you for having me. That email again, if you're interested in getting involved, is k.joyce at dal.ca. Now it's your turn to tell us what you think. Do you think we should have more research around women only? Tweet us at Signal Radio HFX. On the day Halifax's new smoking bylaw came into effect, there was only one designated place that people in the downtown area could legally smoke, and it was across the harbor in Dartmouth. Now three weeks later, the number is growing fast. Jonah Cole tells us more. The smoking bylaw bans smoking on any municipal property. That includes parks, trails, beaches, and sidewalks. The city has an online map showing designated smoking areas, but looking at the website, it takes a bit of time to find a spot to light up. Three weeks in, there are now 42 designated smoking areas on the peninsula and 76 in the wider Halifax municipality. Brendan Elliott speaks for the municipality. 
The challenge with that was we had to find places that were in compliance with the Nova Scotia Smoke-Free Places Act. So we're doing a combination of ourselves looking at what makes sense and then also receiving feedback from the community. Requests for designated smoking areas can be made on the city's website by filling out a form. Max Kirsch completed a request form and saw a designated smoking area placed outside his building within three days. I requested it as soon as I heard that smoking was going to be illegal. I figured out how I was going to become legal because I don't like to break any laws. Kirsch lives in the downtown core. He says the ban makes it difficult to find a place to smoke legally. If I can't smoke in my building, which I can't, and I can't smoke in public areas, which I'm, you know, legally not allowed to now, where am I supposed to smoke? Although Kirsch finds the ban frustrating, he admits the request process is reasonable. It's not the best placement, but the process was easy. They, f they followed through. There's, there's some kinks to work out. Elliot says there's no deadline for requesting a designated smoking area, and the placement is ongoing. Now, I'll hand it over to Julia Simone Rutgers. She'll tell us what happens if you get caught smoking outside one of these areas. Shaikia Upshaw isn't worried about getting caught. She says she's still smoking in the same parking lot she's always gone to. No, I really haven't changed my habits and where I've smoked doesn't matter to me. Upshaw says she knows the rules and the risks but the limited number of designated smoking areas makes it too complicated to go anywhere else. I think there's one around here, and that would take me like 15, 20 minutes to walk to, and I only have a 15-minute break, so it's not realistic. Right. Upshaw says she isn't worried about being ticketed because she hasn't heard of any tickets being doled out. And she's right. Speaking for the municipality, Brendan Elliott says they have received 57 calls to 311 reporting residents for smoking in non-designated areas. But, he says... Ticketing isn't a top priority for bylaw officers. We haven't issued tickets. We're not planning to at this point. We're doing education. We need to have that ticket available to us. If someone is blatantly disregarding the bylaw, then we need to have something in our toolbox we can pull out, and, and that can be a fine. Fines for smoking on municipal property range from a minimum of $25 to a maximum of $2,000. Upshaw says the risk is a nuisance for smokers. It's kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> like, you feel like you're always having to hide to have a cigarette. It's really annoying, actually, because you're not doing anything wrong. It's always been legal. So why is it an issue now? According to the city's website, the new bylaws are meant to reduce secondhand smoke in public spaces. The website says the municipality expects that education instead of ticketing will lead to respect and mindfulness from smokers. For The Signal, I'm Julia Simone Rutgers. Speaking of smoking, what about the wacky tobacco? The devil's lettuce? The good old weed? Well, craft breweries in Nova Scotia have been taking off in recent years, which led me to try and find out if we will see a similar growth in craft cannabis. Even though pot is legal now, craft cannabis in Nova Scotia might be a pipe dream. For a bit of context, here's how Matthew McGrail from Brightwood Brewery in Dartmouth started his business. Well, I went out and bought uh, like homebrew kits and equipment and started brewing a lot of like all grain batches myself and it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty much a rabbit hole after that just making new and different beer and constantly wanting to be more creative. We were up and running July mid-July 2016 selling at the Alderney Landing Farmers Market and we continued selling there at the Farmers Market and like up until June of 2018. Uh, we got our initial loan for this place in September or beginning of October of 2017. 
And then uh, this place opened its doors August 15th, 2018. Two years of a, over two years of an operating business, getting close to three years of, you know, like trying to build this what it is. Uh, at the end of the day, we decided to go with, see how small we can make it and have as little risk as possible. So that's why we ended up going with the, the one barrel system in Ian's basement and uh, growlers at Landing Farmers Market, getting kegs out to bars and restaurants as kind of like, we'll call that like a stepping stone, almost like a marketing kind of like business to see if it was a viable kind of way of doing things. Can cannabis growers follow the same business model? No, they can't. Uh, Growers need to get a license from the federal government. And then provincially, growers can't sell anywhere other than the NSLC. They can't start small at the farmer's market. It's a more involved process. Here's Callum Malik, CEO of Biome Grow, which operates Highland Grow. First up is you've got to build a facility, you get a cultivation license, and then you've got to grow a couple of crops, uh, get them tested, and there's a bunch of administrative steps and testing and uh, stuff you have to go through to, uh, to get Health Canada approve your ability to commercialize and move cannabis out of your facility. You've got to raise a lot of capital. These things aren't cheap to build. There's a long application process. Part of that is because it's farmer grade, we can't use pesticides and fertilizers like the black market can. So we've got to build preventative measures in place so it doesn't happen. So it gives because there's all our remediation steps you can have when something goes wrong. But the good news for home growers with long-term and now 100% legal crops in their basements is that there will be a way to get your pot to a pipe. Here's Malik again. What I affectionately refer to as baby licenses, which means you can be a specialty license. So there is a craft growing license. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it's called, which allows you to have a facility that's somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 square feet. A lot cheaper to get. Thank you, Matt, for bringing us this story. listening to Nebulama with their track Rainbow Road. Check them out at Men's and Molly's tomorrow night with Bear La Friends and Coughing Fitters. Here's what else is happening this weekend. Come celebrate International Day of the Girl 2018 at the Italian Cultural Centre tomorrow from 2 to 4 p.m. There will be workshops and speeches from activists, including Elle Jones. Want to just relax and watch the stars? The documentary Cielo captures a time lapse of one of the best stargazing sites in the world. It's playing at the Carbon Arc Cinema tonight at 7 p.m. And that's what's up. You're listening to The Signal on CKDU. I'm Matt Stickland. And I'm Dorsa Aslami. 
Teachers and parents are encouraging children to pursue science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM activities. They hope to guide them towards career paths that these fields offer. As Carly Churchill tells us, that includes an event for middle school students designed to get them excited about it. Nearly 20 teams of children in grades 4 to 9 participated in the first Engineering Olympics at the Halifax Convention Centre last weekend. The event was organized by Engineers Nova Scotia. Ian Stewart is one of the students who was eager to learn more at the event. Just kind of progressing in like my knowledge of science and kind of like problem solving and all that. Lots of parents were on hand to watch, including Mike McIsaac. Uh, seeing the kids' minds work to solve problems and the teamwork that they, uh, they expressed to do that. Rosalie Hanlon was the event coordinator. She says students and parents were enthusiastic. We had some students ask that we created an age category that's older so they can compete again next year. Hanlon says STEM fields offer the best job prospects. Ten years' worth of enrollment data from Dalhousie University shows that many agree. Engineering enrollment continues to grow. Enrollment in the Faculty of Science has decreased only slightly since 2015. In comparison, the Faculty of Arts and Social Science peaked in 2010 and has continued to decline. For The Signal, I'm Carly Churchill. That's our show for today. If there's anything you want to hear again, we'll be posting a link on our social media feeds. Our handle is SignalRadioHFX on Twitter and Instagram. Or use our hashtag, SignalRadio. We'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts on the show. Thanks this week to producer Robin Simon, associate producer Carly Churchill, and Rebecca Butler, our social media editor. And as always, a shout out to our technician, Mark Pinio in the control room, and our audio professor, Pauline Dakin. Love you, Pauline. We'll be back next week with more stories. Have a great weekend.